For those of us who are children of God, we have a dread foe. He's described in the book of Revelation as a fiery red dragon. This is Satan himself. In Revelation in chapter 12, it accounts for us how Satan sought to destroy Jesus when he was born, but yet God protected him. And then as a result of God's protection of Christ, he could not destroy the Christ child, nor could he defeat the Son of God before he went to the cross to redeem all of God's people. The Satan is enraged. He knows that he has a short time, relatively speaking, on this earth. And so he has set out to make war against the people of God. In chapter 13, it describes for us some servants of this dread foe of Satan himself. The first servant is described as a beast with horns and with heads, a beast who has a mortal wound that is healed, a beast that desires worship, that consumes, destroys. The second beast is described as one who is looking a little more like a lamb, a little more worm-tongued, a little softer and gentler in appearance, but yet who causes people who, who... seeks to get people to worship the image of the beast, to engage in false worship. These two beasts, I think, rightly interpreted from the book of Revelation, represent, one, the first beast, the recurring opposition to God and to his people through civil, unjust civil government. The second beast, I believe, represents... The recurring opposition to the people of God and in this world against God himself through false philosophies and false religion. Today we're going to focus on one verse of chapter 13. I've already preached several weeks ago now the first several verses of chapter 13 and this first beast But we're going to focus on verse 8 today and on the subject of the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation chapter 13, it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Sometime past, I preached on the mark of the beast. We'll get to that again as we progress through Revelation. But Revelation teaches that there are two groups of people. There are those who are followers of the Lamb, and the Lamb is Jesus Christ. And then there are those who are followers and worshipers of the dragon, of Satan. Those who follow the Lamb, Jesus Christ, will face the wrath of the dragon. Those who follow the dragon will face the wrath of the Lamb. And in this case, you want the sheep mad at you, not the dragon. Or you want the dragon mad at you, not the sheep. I get that right. You want the dragon mad at you, not the sheep. And we're going to see it's a fascinating metaphor that Christ is the lamb as we go on here. But the Bible also teaches here that all those who are the lambs are marked with his mark. And all those who worship the dragon receive his mark. And it's a symbol of them worshiping him. So all those who worship Satan by bowing before unjust, unrighteous civil governments in all of their ways and manifestations, all those who abandon Christ and the gospel of Christ and believe in false philosophies and false religions, they will face the wrath of the Lamb, the scriptures say. But this tells us in verse 8 that there is a book of life, and it's the book of life of the Lamb. It's the Lamb's book of life. So let's focus on that today, and let's consider this book. What is this book, first of all? I think as we put together several passages of Scripture, and we're going to turn to several in the book of Revelation today, that this book is the role of heaven. You know that song when the Trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and then it says, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. That's the Lamb's book of life being referenced to. This is the roll of the book of heaven. It's the list 
of what the scriptures call God's elect. And the word elect means chosen, God's chosen ones. We see that indicated in this verse, verse 8, because it says all those who dwell on the earth will worship him, this, this beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All those engaged in lifetime idolatry, false worship, demonstrate that they are not the chosen of God. Their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Look also to chapter 17 and verse 8. We'll have to have quick fingers today. We're going to go through a lot of verses in the book of Revelation. 17 and verse 8. It says, The beast that you saw was, was and is not will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of of the world. Same book. A group of people will marvel at the beast. Wow. What an incredible governmental system. Look at look at their wisdom. Look at their power. Look at their control. Look what they can do. Marvel. All those whose names are not written in the book of life will marvel. But again, indicating that there is a group of people whose names are written in the book of life. Turn to chapter 20. Brother Rick read this for us today. And in chapter 20, we see in 11 through 15, it mentions books, plural, were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So the Bible describes several different books. The Bible describes a book of those who are alive on the earth physically. And that you could be blotted out of that book when you die. The Bible describes here books, plural. There are some books which contain the deeds, the works of all human beings. And the scriptures say that we will be judged based on our works. That's a separate book from the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life contains the names of those who are God's chosen ones. Okay, we're going to unpack some more of this as we go on. Chapter 21, verse 27 Speaking of those who are in the presence of God, the new Jerusalem, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Notice that only they will dwell in the presence of God for eternity. So this book is the role of heaven, the list of the elect. Now notice whose book it is. The Lamb's book of life. Who is the Lamb in the book of Revelation? The Lamb is Jesus, the omnipotent, omniscient, exalted Savior who has accomplished redemption through his death and reigns from heaven with the Father. This is the Lamb. Look at Revelation chapter 5. Remember, John had seen a vision of the throne room and this glorious vision and there's one sitting upon the throne and in his hand is a scroll and there is no one found in all of creation that is worthy to open that scroll. And John is weeping because he knows that scroll contains the providences and the decrees of God. And how is God's will going to be accomplished upon this earth if no one can open this scroll? And then he's told, do not weep, the lamb. can do this. Initially, he's told lion tribe of Judah, and he looks and he sees a lamb. And a lamb as if he were slain. Notice this. Verse 4, So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or even to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. It says the lion of the tribe of Judah is able to do this. And he looks and he sees a lamb. What is it? Is it a lion or the lamb? Yeah, both. 
You see, Revelation mixes its metaphors frequently, and if we don't understand that, we'll misinterpret the book. It mixes its metaphors. It's showing Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king, the royal one who reigns on the throne of David, but yet also, is he not our sacrifice? The one who laid down his life so that we might be saved. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. As we consider the lamb, Jesus, I just want you to worship with me today, okay? We need to worship today. Our hearts need to be reverently resounding and resonating with who Jesus is today. So we're going to look at some things from Revelation about who Jesus is, and we just need to worship, all right? Consider this. This lamb is the divine lamb. Jesus is divine. He is the second person of the Godhead, but he is not a mere creature. He has existed for all eternity. He was never created. He has existed in perfect union, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. They are three persons, but yet they are one. There is one God, the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus is the Son of God, yet he is God. Is this evidenced in any way, shape, or form in the book of Revelation? Now, reason with me, reason with me. Not only do we have, not only do we find in the scriptures direct statements that Jesus is God, which we do find, John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, speaking about Jesus, because it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Clearly Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the very beginning, when the world was created, He already was God, all right? Not only do we have those direct statements, but everywhere in Scripture where we see Jesus either exercising divine prerogatives or receiving worship or praise for that which only God is allowed to do, that is an evidence that Jesus is God. And when you consider all of those things in Scripture, it is filled with the divinity of Jesus Christ. It's just nonsense for anybody to say the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God. It's ridiculous. But think about this for a moment. Divine prerogatives. Here's the reality. This is somewhat fresh on my mind this week due to the whole situation with Alfie Evans. I have three boys back there. They're my children. They're not your children. I have God-given rights based on the fact that those are my children that you do not have. And if you try and take those rights, then you are taking that which is not yours and you are wrongly exercising my prerogatives. We know, we know that there are rights that people have and other people are not to take those rights or they do so wrongly. People in positions of authority have certain rights in virtue of being in authority. If others try and step up and take those rights or exercise that authority when it's not theirs to exercise, they do so wrongly. The scriptures are filled with, and we're going to see from Revelation, instances where Jesus Christ exercises divine prerogatives. He does, only, he does things that only God is permitted to do, and it's seen as right, and it is praised in the word of God. The scriptures are filled with such things. Consider this with me for a moment, just from the book of Revelation. The lamb in Revelation verse five receives worship. Who is to be worshiped but God alone? Are we free to worship any other creature? Are we free to worship creatures? No, Romans chapter one condemns the worship of all creatures. Yet Christ receives worship. Worship, verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp. They fell down before him, worshiping him and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and nation and people and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And notice this in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, that would be idolatry and blasphemous if Jesus Christ is not divine. Because the scriptures say, Jesus Looking at Satan said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And this is in heaven. The worship of the lamb. He is divine. The lamb exercises divine attributes when he pours out wrath upon the earth. Look at chapter 6 and verse 16. We'll start with verse 15. It says, The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? You know what it says in Romans chapter 12? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus is exercising a divine prerogative here and people recognize that as they cry out to be saved from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus in John chapter 5 said there was a day coming in which the dead would hear his voice and they would be raised. And then they would be judged. The lamb exercises divine judgment, a prerogative of God. This is evidence of the divinity of the lamb. Jesus is a savior. He is the savior. This is evidence of his divinity. Chapter 7 and verse 10. Let's start with verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Are, Are you seeing the picture here? Him who is on the throne and the Lamb. God the Father and the Lamb. You see them juxtaposed together over and over again. What is this indicating? Their equality. And crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Think about this for just a moment. In Isaiah chapter 48, God said, I will not give my glory to another. You see? So the Lamb is not another in His divinity because He shares glory with God the Father. In Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 11, God, Yahweh God, God the Father says, Besides me, there is no Savior. Now, what does this indicate? That Jesus is the Savior. It indicates their equality in their divinity. It's an excellent passage to use with those people that will come and knock on your door. The JWs. Because they didn't change that one in their corrupted translation of the Bible. So you can take them to Old Testament passages where God says that he is the only savior. Isaiah 43 verse 11 and say, oh, but wait a minute. It says in your New Testament even that Jesus is the Savior. How does that work? You can take them to passages where God says, Isaiah chapter 44, the end of the chapter, verse 24, I believe it is, I created this earth by myself. And then you can take them to passages in first, like in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, where they insert that Jesus created other things. They put that in the text, even though it's not in the Greek. But you can show them and say, wait a minute, even if you believe Jesus created other things, how does that fit with God creating all things by himself? You see, conclusion, Jesus is God. He is divine. 
He is divine. He's the Savior. Jesus is titled Lord. Revelation 17 and verse 14. Revelation 17, verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. You know, a common designation in the Greek Septuagint for The divine name of God is the Greek word kurios, translated as Lord. Now, why is is that significant? The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, which was translated well before Jesus came, and it was quoted frequently, actually, by the apostles in our New Testament. And... In that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, the divine name is translated Kyrios, Lord, which is attributed to Jesus several hundred times in the New Testament. When the Jews heard the reading of the New Testament scriptures saying Jesus Christ is Lord, all those familiar with the Septuagint which was most of them in the Hellenized world because it was a Greek-speaking people, okay? They heard Jesus is God. He is divine. And notice this as well from our text, 13 and verse 8. Who is it that possesses this book? After whom is this book named? You realize the very book which contains the list of all of God's children is the book of the Lamb. That in and of itself is an indication of the value, worth, dignity, even divinity of the Lamb himself. Because as we tie this all in with the rest of Scripture, Jesus receives glory and honor And God says, I will not share my glory with another. Jesus is not another in his essence. He is, as he said, one with the Father. I and my Father are one. This is our Savior. This is the captain of our salvation. This is the God whom we worship. He is worthy of all praise and honor, is he not? You can't, you can't have the Father without having Jesus. Jesus said it himself. You cannot have the Father without Jesus. You can't have Jesus without the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He and his Father are one in their divine essence and in their divine attributes. Notice this lamb is also the Redeemer. And we've seen this from several passages. Chapter 5 and verse 7 being or five and verse nine being one of those that that he is the one who has redeemed the people of God. And how did he do that? He did that with his own blood. What does that signify? It signifies that he gave his life. Why was that important? Because the scriptures say the wages of sin is death. All those who commit sin, which is all of us, have a capital sentence in the divine courtroom. God is so holy, so righteous. Every sin deserves everlasting death. Every sin is a capital crime in God's courtroom. All of us have a capital sentence hanging over our heads unless Jesus Christ, the Lamb, who is the only one who is both God and man and absolutely perfect, never broke the law of God, never sinned, and who was our substitute for those who have faith in him. If we have faith in him, God declares us to be righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. 
counting as ours. Of course, we call that imputation. And we say there was a double imputation. Praise God, right? Namely, our sins were counted as belonging to Jesus when he hung on the cross, and his righteousness is counted as ours in this life and before God. What a deal! (laughs) Can you get any better deal than that? All of our trash was on Jesus, and we get all of his glory and righteousness counted as ours. Praise God! What a glorious Savior! What a Redeemer! The scriptures also, though in Revelation, and here is it this is an incredible metaphor. It just blows my mind. But again, Revelation is really interesting in how it mixes its metaphors, okay? Our shepherd is the lamb. <laughs> now, now think about that for a minute. <laughs> Our shepherd is, is the lamb. Look at, look at this imagery in uh, 717 and then 1414. 717, first of all. It says, For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I mean, you you see the imagery here? See the picture? Here we are following a sheep, the lamb. But he's not just any lamb. Remember his depiction back there. He's got crowns, multiple heads and crowns, according to this picture, which indicate he's the lamb who has power. He's the lamb who has authority. But yet he's the lamb in that he's the one who died. Think of sacrificial system. Think Passover lamb. He's the one who died so that we could be redeemed. But yet we follow a lamb. Not a dragon. We follow a lamb. If we're children of God. If, if, if you're not a child of God, you're following a dragon. That dragon's going to turn on you and, and seek to devour you. But the lamb, the lamb will only love you as his children. But in this divine account, the lamb thrashes the dragon. That is awesome. We have a lamb so powerful that he thrashes a dragon. Cue dramatic music. (laughs) Praise God. The lamb wins. That's better than any football game on the face of the earth. Revelation 14 and verse 14. I've got the I've got the wrong verse listed down here. Let's uh Let's jump back for a minute to verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Notice that the Lamb mentioned there in judgment. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Jesus Christ is the divine Lamb of God. He is our Redeemer. He is our Shepherd. This is his book, the Lamb's book of life. Who is in the book? I've already stated my case that it's the elect. Those that are chosen by God. Notice we just read, it said, those not written in the book will worship the beast. And what happens to those who worship the beast? They will be condemned. What does that indicate? That indicates that all those who are not in the book are going to face the judgment wrath of God. Again, I'm not preaching on the mark of the beast and everything again, but 
I want you to be encouraged. It's not, it's not RFID chips. It's not barcodes. It's not tattoos. It's, it's none of that stuff. The mark of the beast is a symbol in the book of Revelation indicating those that are marked as unregenerate. It's a mark which God sees ultimately, and he alone knows, but it's a mark which we can see demonstrated in the fruit of the life of people. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. The 144,000 is representative of the elect, God's children, those who belong to the lamb. And it says they have a mark on their foreheads to designate them. And we tied that back in with the book of Ezekiel, where God already used the symbolism of those who would be spared Spiritually, because they were repentant in the judgment that would come upon Jerusalem. And it says that they were marked out so that they would not be condemned. You see, there's precedence in the Old Testament already for that symbolism of markings. If you're a child of God, you're marked as his. He identifies you as his own. And you know what? He's not going to get confused. You know, it's like one pastor I was listening to and he was talking about Jesus as the shepherd and the sheep and he knows his own sheep, the scriptures say, right? And he used this illustration. He said, he said, how many moms, if somebody tries to slip a stray kid on you, are going to be confused? And you know, <laughs> well, no. People recognize their own babies, you know. There, some people are like animal lovers and, you know, they'll be a whole litter of kittens or a whole litter of puppies. And I'm looking at them, they all look the same to me, you know, and some people can say, no, no, this one looks like this and like that and the other, but the mothers know and they know which ones are theirs, right? You know, which is your baby ladies. God knows his own. His own are marked with his mark. His own are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is that any encouragement to us? It's an encouragement for those who have faith in the Lamb. Faith in Jesus. The elect are written in this book. And the elect written, we saw from Revelation 21, 27, are those who will dwell in the presence of God forever. Now, let's ask the question, how did they get in the book? How do we we get in the book? Well, there are... Two primary categories in evangelicalism for how people get in the book. Arminianism, so-called, and Calvinism, so-called. First of all, you have to recognize if you're reading this book that there is a group of people called the elect. And elect means chosen by God and that the elect will be saved. Okay, You're not dealing with the clear text of Scripture if you're denying that the elect could be lost. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 that there would be false Christ who would, lo- who would arise, who would deceive even the elect if it were possible. He's saying it's not possible for the elect ultimately to be deceived. Jesus said, I know my sheep. And he says that the Father has given to me People And they will be drawn by my father. And he says, I will raise them up in the last day. There's a definiteness to the reality of an elect group of people who are written in the Lamb's book of life and they will be saved. All right. You can't you can't reject your election. Some people say, well, you can reject your election. No, you can't reject your election. Some people say, oh, well, I reject my predestination. Then it wasn't your predestination to begin with. It, you get that? The whole, the whole terminology, predestination, which is a biblical word. Look at Romans chapter 8, right? The whole terminology says that there's a destination which you were predetermined toward. And if you end up in a different place, then that wasn't your predestination. Okay. Well, how how do Bible-believing Christians within the Christian camp who are not going off into Pelagianism, denying that we're sinners, denying that we're saved by grace through faith, how do they reconcile 
these issues. The Arminian position, semi-Pelagianism, says that God sees who will choose him, and then he elects or chooses or predestines those that he sees will make a decision of faith for him. How do they support that? Passages like Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, where the word foreknown or foreknowledge is used. They'll look at a couple passages where it says God has foreknown or he has foreknowledge. And the way that that's interpreted is that God basically looks down through the corridors of time. He sees those that will choose him and he locks their choice into place so that they are elect. Okay. Romans chapter eight is one such passage. Let's start with verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he predestined these he also called whom he called these he also justified and whom he justified these he also glorified you see predestination to many is a big scary word but it's a biblical word so we need to understand it but notice this They'll say, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See there? So that shows that he foreknew that they would choose him. Well, with this verse, I I say, stop, wait, wait, wait a second. Does it say that he foreknew that someone would choose him, therefore he predestined them? Is that that what that says? No, 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 no. You got the wrong category. It doesn't say that he foreknows a what. It says he foreknows a whom. Right? Right? It doesn't say that he foreknows that a group of people will do something. It says he foreknows a group of people. He foreknows. The word foreknow in scripture could be loosely interpreted. He loves in advance. The word know or knowledge in scripture very, very often is not used to talk about a mere intellectual grasping of something or understanding something, it's used to indicate a deep, intimate, personal relationship. Right? It's even it's even used in the scriptures to refer to a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. It says Adam knew his wife Eve. Does that mean he, he knew her favorite color and he knew her favorite flower and he never forgot her birth? No, no. So it's indicative of something deeper than just a head knowledge. It's a, a relational knowledge. What is this text literally saying? It's saying those that God set his love and affection on in advance. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He locked their destiny in place. The scriptures say we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. The scriptures say while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, this is a whom, not a what. Also, while I'm here, there are some who say that election in the scriptures is merely corporate. Okay, so they'll look at the book of Ephesians and it's talking about the Gentiles being brought in and that God predestined them to be brought in. It says election has nothing to do with with God choosing individuals to be saved. It only has to do with God choosing the broad group of the Gentiles and that there would be some individuals amongst the Gentiles who would be saved. This verse and, and other verses blow that out of the water. What does this say? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Are there individuals who love God and are called according to his purpose? Yes. Are there individuals who are not? Yes. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Is this talking just about Gentiles being brought in? No. This is talking about individually. What does it say at the beginning of chapter 8? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh. This is talking about individuals who are saved. 
And notice it also indicates here that you cannot lose your salvation. This is called the golden chain of redemption in these verses. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. You can't lose any of those things. Jesus said, no one can pluck you out of my hand or my father's hand. We're secure in Christ Jesus. Well, one other passage that is used from the Arminian position to try and explain how people get in the Lamb's book of life. How are we elected? First Peter chapter one and verse two. And the word foreknowledge is used here. First Peter one and verse two. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, verse one, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in sanctification of the spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So there it is. Elect. Chosen. That's the word elect means chosen. What, what do we do when we elect a public official? We choose them to, to be in office. The word elect means chosen. We're asking chosen by whom? And we're asking in particular chosen why? Is it based on foreseen merit in the individual? Is it based on man's will? Or is it based on God's will and his choice? The Arminian position says it's based on man's will and man's choice. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So they say, see, this is indicating that God foreknew that people would choose him and he chose them based on them choosing him. Okay. Well, again, the problem is the word foreknowledge there. That's limiting it only to an intellectual understanding. Which it's so much deeper than that. Again, it's God setting his love on someone in advance. And then it says electing them based on that. But there's also a precedent precedent for this word foreknowledge, and it's used in Acts chapter two. And it's speaking about Christ himself. Acts chapter two. And verse 23, this is Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he's preaching about Jesus in verse 22. And then in verse 23, he says this about Jesus. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and have put to death. Notice that. Was it an accident that Jesus went to the cross? Was it an afterthought of God that Jesus would go to the cross? No. God determined before the world was even created that Jesus was going to die on that cross. Okay? Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Notice the linking of those. God's determined purpose and his foreknowledge. Who is the one who purposes? It's God. Was that based on God foreseeing that people were going to purpose other things and then he's just reacting to what people are going to do? No. The scriptures don't present any of this in that way. So I don't think that the Arminian position is supported well in the scripture. And I think what the Arminian position ultimately does is it sees the will of man as inviolable. The Arminian position says the free will of man is the one thing that God will never violate. He will never, ever go against the will of man. And I'm like, what? The scriptures say that natural man, 1 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 2, natural man cannot receive the things of God. 
If God does not give the natural man the ability to be spiritual and to receive the things of God, the natural man would never be saved. They would never choose God. If God looks down the corridor of time and he's looking at natural men and women and children, he will see none who will choose him. Because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They cannot, the scriptures say, comprehend the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. It doesn't say they they won't or they choose not to, which are both accurate, even and said in other places. But in this in this text, it says they cannot. They cannot. So what's what's the reality? God doesn't violate the will of the natural man who is not elect. God lets them do what they want to do. And what do they want to do? They want to sin against God. They want to reject him. They want to hate him. And unless he draws them, the scripture says, unless he puts a new heart in them and takes the old heart out, which indicates new desires, unless he makes them a new creation in Christ Jesus, unless he births them again so that they're born again, unless he does this work, the scriptures teach, that they will continue in their sin, they will reject him. So all of these things give evidence for the Calvinist position that God freely and graciously chooses not according to any foreseen merit or faith of men, but according to his good pleasure. And whenever we see in the context of God choosing, we never see that he is choosing because of some good that he sees in people. We don't see that. In Romans chapter 9, speaking of Jacob and Esau, it says before they were even born or had done any good or evil, God said, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. So it's not based on anything perceived, good perceived in them whatsoever. In Ephesians in chapter 1, when it speaks about God electing and predestining, it gives the reason ultimately that he did it. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. And let's start with verse 7. And I just want you to listen to this and see if it's indicating any goodness or favor in the person and God making a choice based on that. Do you hear anything that's manward and God like, yep, there's a good one. There's a, there's a good one. There's one that's going to there's one that's going to pick me. I like him because he likes me. I mean, do we do we see anything like that? Verse three, let's start with verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's the result of his choosing us, that we might be made righteous in Christ. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to what? According to the will of man, because people were going to choose him in advance, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. You see, it's all... God action, God action, God action, not us action. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, unmerited favor, which he made to abound toward us in wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. I mean... Hear this? It's all God acting, God acting, God acting. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on earth, in him. In him also we've obtained an inheritance being predestined based on his foreknowing that we would choose him in advance. Is that what you see next? It's not in my Bible. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. You see? When we see this doctrine of election expounded, 
in the scriptures, it is always from the perspective of God acting, not us. God chose us before we were even in existence. He didn't choose us based on any merit. So those who are written in the Lamb's book of life are those who were graciously elected by God the Father before the world began, not based on any merit of their own, but based on his good pleasure. And he did that so that he would receive glory when we gather together and we worship the Lamb for what the Lamb has done. And you know what? When we say, I had nothing to do with this, it's all of God, we give God massive glory. And if we come to the table saying, I'm bringing something to the table. I'm bringing my choice. I did it. We're demeaning the work of God. If we're coming with that attitude, I'm not saying that those who hold to an Arminian position are necessarily outside of Christ, okay? And there are some who come who, who hold that position and their, their practice and their preaching is a lot better than their theology, all right. But the reality is this, if we come before God with anything in our hands, what's the old hymn? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. If we come to God with anything in our hands, even our own choice and our own will, that we we are trusting in other than Christ for our salvation. Can Someone believe in salvation by grace through faith in their declaration and say, yes, I believe that absolutely. But yet they so conceive of their faith that they actually treat it as a work. Yes, they can. If they believe that they are made right with God because of what they have done in choosing God. What is the object of their faith? Is it Jesus? No, it's themselves. They're saying, my faith is in my faith. All those who ultimately place their faith in their faith will face the wrath of God. Only those who place their faith in Christ and what he has accomplished will enter into the new Jerusalem. Well, in this book, we do need to ask this because some will, some will say, the true Arminian will say, oh yeah, you're in the book of life, the Lance book of life, but you can be blotted out. You can lose your salvation. And they'll look to a text, Revelation chapter 3. Okay, so look over there for a moment. Revelation 3. And verse 5 is the verse in question. This is written, a letter written to the church in Sardis. This is a church that has a name that they are alive, but they are dead. As a, as a corporate congregation, they're told in verse 2 to be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. So that there are, there are a few yet within this congregation that are, that are showing signs of life, Okay. But as a congregation, as a corporate entity, they are dead before the Lord and in danger. They're called to repent. And then notice in verse 5, it says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And the Armenian will say, well, see there, see there, there you could be blotted out of the book of life. Does the text say that? No. Not at all. The people who repent are being told, your names will not be blotted out of the book of life. It's a false inference to say that because it says that your names will not be blotted out, that you could be blotted out. That's a false inference. You can't logically draw that conclusion. Okay? You understand where I'm coming from? Could you give encouragement to someone 
in the midst of a hardship or a trial and say something like, as a child of God, God will never leave you or forsake you. As a child of God, he loves you and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And then turn around and say, but as a child of God, that necessarily means that you can't be separated from the love of Christ, but it also would mean by inference that you could be separate. No, this is saying your name will not be blotted out of the book. What's that? It's an encouragement to them that if you are showing evidence of salvation, repentance, it's an indication you're in the book. And those who are in the book will never be blotted out, never be removed. Okay? Finally, then, we need to consider this question what is the character of those written in the book? Maybe as I've been preaching this, you've been wondering, well, is my name there? How do, how do I know? How do I know? For some people, this, this doctrine of election is a frightening doctrine because they're very concerned that maybe my name is not written there. First of all, let me encourage you that if you're concerned about your name being written there, then you got hope. <laughs> it's, those, it's those that aren't concerned at all that I'm worried about. All right? All right? Just the fact that you're concerned, just the fact you want your name to be written in the book of life, if you're coming at it from the perspective of because I love God and, and I don't want to face his wrath, that's a good thing. That's a, that's a good sign. What is the character of those written in the book? What did we see from Revelation chapter 3? It said that they were called to repent. One of the characteristics of those that are regenerated, who are true children of God, is that they live a life of repentance. What is repentance? It's, it's acknowledging before God that you are wrong, you have sinned, you have done wrongly, and that you need God's forgiveness. Because you want to be forgiven by God. You don't want to live in sin. You don't want to live in unrighteousness. A character quality of those who are written in the book is that they repent. From chapter 3, verse 5, also it mentions the one who overcomes. And this is mentioned over and over again in Revelation. What does that mean? It's the one who does not abandon the faith. It's the one who endures hardship. And does not deny Jesus. It's the one who ultimately, as Brother Rick was pointing out this, this morning, wakes up and says, the question is, am I trusting Jesus today? It's not the person who says, well, I trusted Jesus for my salvation way back there, so I know I'm good to go, but now I can do whatever I want. No. It's the one who day in and day out is overcoming, overcoming. It's the one when the beast... Wicked governments around this world impose harsh sanctions upon the people of God and say, violate your beliefs and your principles or we will fine you, we will imprison you, we will do whatever to you. And they say, no, I ought to obey God rather than men. And you know, the beast does, the beast does this so often in the West with such suave language. Read about the whole thing with Alfie Evans and the ruling by that wicked judge. And what does he say? He says things like, because we want to promote the quality of Alfie's life. You know, you know what? So you're going to deny him medical services to promote the quality of his life. <laughs> the parents have a hospital that they can fly him to who says that they'll treat him. And you're saying, no, we have to preserve his dignity. We have to preserve his quality of life. It's all about that. That's, that's the talk of the devil. It's the talk of the beast. Situations where people are told tolerance. You have to promote tolerance. What they mean is absolute acceptance of all forms of depraved immorality. Or else we will beat you into submission with the sword. And with the law. 
And those who overcome will say, do your worst. I will not deny my Jesus. And I will not embrace wickedness in the name of tolerance. Does that mean that we hate people and despise? No, I mean, we love and we preach truth. But one of the ways that we love is we preach truth and we take stands on the truth and don't capitulate, don't bow to the beast. Those who are written in the book overcome. They don't worship the beast. They're God worshipers. They see God is all glorious. The lamb is all glorious and they don't bow to the beast with their pocketbooks. And you know, one, one of the ways that that subtly this type of thing creeps in, even in a nation like ours, is people can vote. And when people are voting based on how their pocketbook is going to be affected, not voting based on whether or not this candidate is going to promote murder in this nation, then they show that they've got one knee bowed to the beast. I mean, where does the Bible teach us that we should be all about our physical ease, comfort, and material prosperity and that something like murdering innocent children in the womb takes second place to that. But yet, how many professing Christians have I heard say that they would vote for somebody like a Hillary Clinton or a Bill Clinton or whoever else because they're going to do the most economic good for the nation? But yet they stand up and proclaim, we support a woman's right to choose. You see? It's bowing to the beast. It's bowing to the beast. Those that are written in the Lamb's book of life are characterized not by sin, but by righteousness. Ultimately, look at and we close with this passage, Revelation chapter 20. There's there's an interesting tension in this passage. We've already read it. But notice it says, I saw the dead, small and great standing before God and books, plural, were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And then it says the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books, plural. OK, these these other books are the books of the deeds of people. But how does it say that people are judged? It says they're judged. By their works, by what they've done in this life. And the scripture presents that. In multiple passages, it talks about that in the book of Romans, even that people will be judged based on their works. Now, is the Bible teaching that we're justified by our works? No, again, false inference. We don't go that far. It's not teaching we're justified by our works. But what it is teaching is that our works are evidence of whether or not we've been justified. And if somebody is living in perpetual sin that's an evidence that they don't have the Spirit of God living in them. And so that person should be concerned and they ought to bow in repentance and profess faith in Christ Jesus. It says in 21... He who overcomes, verse 7, shall inherit all things. I will be his God. He shall be my son. But notice this. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Is that saying we have to live a life of perfection or else we're going to be cast in the lake of fire? No, it doesn't. But it is saying that if our life is characterized by these sins, that we are bound for hell. Notice these are persons being spoken of, not just individual sins. If someone is cowardly and deny Christ, and they indicate by their life that every time they're in a situation where they're going to be made uncomfortable or pressured or persecuted, they're going to deny Jesus, they show they don't love Jesus. If somebody's unbelieving, obviously. Notice it says murder is sexually immoral. You know what? In this generation, guys, we've gone so far in the issue of sexual immorality that we can't even rely on people's consciences plaguing them anymore if they're shacked up with somebody. 
that it means nothing. It is so acceptable now that people rarely even have a twinge of conscience shacking up with somebody before they're married. Fornication, sex before marriage means nothing in our culture anymore. It's gone so far that articles have literally been written saying that if, if teenagers want to be rebels, that they practice abstinence. Literally. I've read the article. Teenagers these days who want to be rebels are practicing abstinence. And I mean, we've gone so far with it that every form of sexual perversion, save for a few, are now being embraced mainstream, widely. We've, we've got a lot of calling to repentance to do, but we can't just expect that the people that we communicate with are going to know where we're coming from and are going to feel guilty about what they're doing. And so all we have to do is just tell them, knock it off. No, we're going to have to take them to the word and explain to them from God's word that what they're doing is wrong. And you're going to have people look at you and say, I I had no idea. (laughs) I didn't know that was wrong. I mean, I was being faithful to her or him. I wasn't cheating on them. But then other people be like, yeah, I can have as many people living with me as I want to. But this says that all those who are sexually immoral, pansexual, bisexual, homosexual, fornicators, adulterers, will be cast in the lake of fire. All those characterized by evil and wickedness and sin, embracing loving sin and not willing to repent of that sin, will be damned. And it's evidence that they're not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What are you characterized by? I pray that you have faith in Christ. I pray that you're looking to him to make you right with God and nothing that you do. And I pray that because you love him, you are striving to do what he calls you to do. And you're being disciplined and you're saying, I don't care what the world says. The world says, let it all hang out. I am going to be disciplined and self-controlled because my Jesus was. And I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow him. Scriptures say, make your calling and election sure. Doesn't mean you can change your election, but it means you can have certainty that you are elect. If you're having faith in Christ and walking in righteousness before him. Okay. Father, thank you for Christ and for his word and your word to us in the word. Pray, Father, that you bless the word that we have heard today that you'll drive it into our hearts, that you'll be glorified in it. Pray that you'll bless the upcoming time uh, of fellowship that we have in the meal together. May you be exalted in it, and may we encourage one another to love and good works in it. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.